For our scripture reading, we turn to two passages. Take note how these two passages are related. First to Ezekiel chapter 34. Ezekiel 34, and we read there verses 11 to, to 31, Ezekiel 34, 11 to 31. For thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I, even I, will both search my sheep and seek them out. As a shepherd seeketh out his flock in the day that he is among his sheep that are scattered, so will I seek out my sheep and will deliver them out of all places where they have been scattered in the cloudy and dark day. And I will bring them out from the people and gather them from the countries and will bring them to their own land and feed them upon the mountains of Israel by the rivers and in all the inhabited places of the country. I will feed them in a good pasture, and upon the high mountains of Israel shall their fold be. There shall they lie in a good fold, and in a fat pasture shall they feed upon the mountains of Israel. I will feed my flock, and I will cause them to lie down, saith the Lord God. I will seek that which was lost, and bring again that which was driven away, and will bind up that which was broken, and will strengthen that which was sick. But I will destroy the fat and the strong. I will feed them with judgment. And as for you, O my flock, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I judge between cattle and cattle, between the rams and the he-goats. Seemeth it a small thing unto you to have eaten up the good pasture, but ye must tread down your feet, with your feet the residue of your pastures, and to have drunk of the deep waters, but you must foul the residue with your feet? And as for my flock, they eat that which ye have trodden with your feet, and they drink that which ye have fouled with your feet. Therefore thus saith the Lord God unto them, Behold, I, even I, will judge between the fat cattle and between the lean cattle, because ye have thrust with side and with shoulder and pushed all the diseased with your horns till ye have scattered them abroad, Therefore will I save my flock, and they shall no more be a prey. And I will judge between cattle and cattle, and I will set up one shepherd over them. And he shall feed them, even my servant David. He shall feed them, and he shall be their shepherd. And I, the Lord, will be their God, and my servant David, a prince among them. I, the Lord, have spoken it. And I will make with them a covenant of peace and will cause the evil beasts to cease out of the land 
and they shall dwell safely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. And I will make them and the places round about my hill a blessing, and I will cause the shower to come down in his season. There shall be showers of blessing, and the tree of the field shall yield her fruit, and the earth shall yield her increase, and they shall be safe in their land, and shall know that I am the Lord, when I have broken the bands of their yoke, and delivered them out of the hand of all those that serve themselves of them. And they shall no more be a prey to the heathen, neither shall the beast of the land devour them, but they shall dwell safely, and none shall make them afraid. And I will raise up for them a plant of renown, and they shall be no more consumed with hunger in the land, neither bear the shame of the heathen any more. Thus shall they know that I, the Lord their God, am with them, and that they, even the house of Israel, are my people, saith the Lord God. And ye, my flock, the flock of my pasture, are men, and I am your God, saith the Lord God. And then we read part of John 10, and we take note, familiar with, John chapter 10, we take note how what Jesus says concerning himself is related to what had been prophesied about the coming good shepherd. John 10, read verses 14 through 30. Starting at verse 14. I am the good shepherd, and know my sheep, and am known of mine. As the Father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. And other sheep I have, which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one fold and one shepherd. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. There was a division, therefore, again among the Jews for these sayings. And many of them said, He hath a devil and is mad. Why hear ye him? Others said, These are not the words of him that hath a devil. Can then the devil open the eyes of the blind? And it was at Jerusalem, the feast of the dedication, and it was winter. And Jesus walked in the temple in Solomon's porch. Then came the Jews around about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But ye believe not, because ye are not of my sheep, as I said unto you. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give unto them eternal life, and they shall never perish, Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. My Father, which gave them me, is greater than all, 
and no man is able to pluck them out of my Father's hand. I and my Father are one. So far we read from the Holy Scriptures. What we just read in the rest of Scripture, the basis for the teaching of our Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 21. We're looking at it this Lord's Day from the viewpoint of what it teaches about Christ's flock, the one flock of Jesus Christ, the Good Shepherd. Lord's Day 21, we read, What believest thou concerning the Holy Catholic Church of Christ, that the Son of God, from the beginning to the end of the world, gathers, defends, and preserves to himself by his spirit and word out of the whole human race, a church chosen to everlasting life, agreeing in true faith, and that I am and forever shall remain a living member thereof. Do you understand by the communion of saints? First, that all and everyone who believes, being members of Christ, are in common partakers of him and of all his riches and gifts. Secondly, that everyone must know it to be his duty readily and cheerfully to employ his gifts for the advantage and salvation of other members. What believest thou concerning the forgiveness of sins? That God, for the sake of Christ's satisfaction, will no more remember my sins, neither my corrupt nature, against which I have to struggle all my life long, but will graciously impute to me the righteousness of Christ, that I may never be condemned before the tribunal of God. Dearly beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, there's quite a bit in this Lord's Day. There are some Lord's Days especially that the amount, of, the amount of points that are made in the Lord's Day are, are many. That this Lord's Day includes a question and answer on the church. We have a whole section, a, a large section, and when we talk and go through the different doctrines that we hold to, there's much to be said about the church, and there's, this is the Lord's Day that has the question and answer on the church, what the church is, how the church is gathered, how the church is chosen, how the church is one, the church is one, the church is holy, the church is Catholic, the church is apostolic. And also this Lord's Day speaks about the communion of the saints, that those who are in the church commune, they have fellowship together and that they are forgiven 
The Lord's Day is covering the, those three articles of the Apostles' Creed. When we say, I believe and, not in, but we say, I believe and, Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sin, this Lord's Day covers all three. It's also very important that we see how comforting this Lord's Day is. There's many wrong ideas about the church and about what the church is and about what the church is called to do. And it's important to know the, the teachings of Christ concerning the church and what the church is and what the church does. It's also important to see, and you see this throughout the Heidelberg Catechism, how the truth is applied to us. For example, the article on the church says, in that article, we make a confession that I am and forever shall remain a living member of the church. Forever shall remain and the last question and answer talks about how my sins are forgiven. And God graciously imputes to me the righteousness of Christ. I'll never be condemned before the tribunal of God. And this Lord's Day speaks to us about what our calling is. It's our duty to use our gifts for the advantage and the salvation of the other members of the body. So we take note, too, about how the different practical applications that are made here in this Lord's Day. And then as far as the texts that we've read, one thing, as was already pointed out, you see how when we read a passage in the New, we're pretty familiar with John chapter 10, and I've often said to the young people that there's so many things fundamental doctrines that you can prove from John chapter 10, distinctive reform doctrine. But also we see how this is related to what was already taught in the Old Testament concerning the coming of the, the good shepherd and how he would gather his people and that there would be one flock one flock that was taught in that was taught in Ezekiel 34 and that's also taught here in John 10 there shall be one fold and one shepherd or one flock and one shepherd one church one holy church gathered by Christ the son of God and that we hear the shepherd's voice and are drawn and follow our Lord who leads us and who protects us and feeds us. We consider this Lord's Day under the theme one flock, one shepherd. We consider first of all the one flock, secondly the shepherd's voice, and thirdly the gathered sheep.
First, the one flock. In that connection, we talk about, and there's going to be a number of doctrines that we're going to talk about relatively briefly because there's so many. But this is the Lord's Day that speaks about election. There are, it's not the only place, but this is one place in the Heidelberg Catechism where it speaks about election. When you go to the Canons of Dort, then it's much detail about election and reprobation. But if the question is asked, well, was election when, and reprobation, was it taught already in the Belgic Confession and in the Heidelberg Catechism? The answer is yes. And here is one place where we see that. When it speaks about the church, it speaks about the church as being a church that's gathered out of the whole human race, a church chosen chosen to everlasting life which is in agreement with what jesus said that there were those that were given to him jesus laid down his life for his sheep for those that had been given to him you and i had been given to the son before we were born What a comfort that is to know that we were given to the Son long before we were born, before the foundation of the world. God had chosen us to be one of those that, were, that are Christ's sheep. Not chosen because we were holy, Chosen that we might be holy. And that's the relationship between election and holiness. Not chosen because we were. Chosen that we might be. That's the canons, the first head, article 9. Well, what a comfort that is. In all the trials we face, in the difficulties that we go through in this life, and sometimes our mind can be so much on those difficulties and for us to continue to remember that we were unconditionally chosen by God, given to the Son who laid down his life for us. A member of the church, a member of this flock that consists of those that were chosen to everlasting life. And there's one people, it certainly makes sense that if all those that are chosen are going to be united. One holy Catholic church. When we say it in the Apostles' Creed, we say an, an holy Catholic church. We, also, we elsewhere refer to it as one one holy Catholic. The Nicene Creed speaks of one holy Catholic and apostolic church. One. All those that are chosen are one people. All those that are given to Christ are one. They're one flock. 
in John 10, verse 16, there's two words that are translated fold. The word in the King James, the word fold appears twice. And other sheep I have which are not of this fold. Them also I must bring, and they shall hear my voice, and there shall be one. There it's a different word. There's a word has the idea of flock. That there shall be one flock and one shepherd. One people that are set apart, that they're holy, has the idea that we are set apart, separated from others as God's special people. Like Israel in the Old Testament days, separated from the nations. As God's separate people, they are wholly consecrated to God. And they were to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. People in whom the Holy Spirit dwells, who are holy, sanctified by the Spirit. One people, not two peoples. Now that whole subject, you could spend the rest of the sermon talking about that subject, especially if we were in the, if we were bringing the word to those that had come out of a Baptist air, because there are many that read Ezekiel 34 and they explain it very differently. There are many that look at Ezekiel 34 about the gathering of Israel and they say, what this is referring to, this is, first they'll say, this is an unfulfilled promise about the gathering of Israel from the nations. And what's going to happen is it's going to be fulfilled in the coming millennium. There's a coming thousand-year reign where Israel, the, the, the kingdom promised to Israel will take place. And there's multitude of, there's many Old Testament passages, they say, this will be fulfilled in the millennium, which means... Going forward in the near future, there's going to be the rapture of the church, and the church is a separate people from Israel. And at any moment, there's going to be the rapture of the church. The church is going to be in heaven. Then there's going to be the great tribulation. And there's going to be a number of Jews converted. And then there's going to be this thousand-year reign of Israel on earth and then all of these passages passages like like this are speaking of what's going to be fulfilled in that millennium millennial kingdom and the 1000 year idea they they refer to revelation 20 to re, for proof of that they come right out and will say there are two peoples of God, Israel and the church. And that you can't look at promises with regard to Israel and say those are fulfilled in what happens to the church. But the scripture explains it that way. 
the one flock is referring to the church. It's referring to all those who have Christ as the shepherd. If Christ is your shepherd, from whatever nation you come from, you're gathered together into that one flock. And that passage in Ezekiel 34, certainly this passage in John 10 that Jesus is speaking, he's making a reference to the same ideas that were taught in Ezekiel 34. One people, one flock, as answer 54 states, that the Son of God, notice that it specifically says the Son of God, that the Son of God, from the beginning to the end of the world, it, he didn't start gathering the church at Pentecost. He's been gathering the church from the beginning to the end of the world. The ones gathered from the old in the days of the old dispensation to today were one people. From the beginning to the end of the world gathers defends and preserves to himself by his spirit and word of the whole human race, a church. He's been gathering together his one flock from the beginning to the end of the world, the Son of God has. And those who are part of that flock are united. That's a unity and this is another point that we make with regard to the unity. This is a unity that God makes. Where many would want to set up their own idea of, you know, a body and, and who's going to be members of that body. This is a unity that God brings about. All those that have the law of God written in their heart, they together have one heart, as the scriptures say, that we have one heart. We have the same word, the same law of God written in our heart. The same spirit of Christ is in us. All those who have the same spirit of Christ in them are one. That's a unity that God brought about. We're united in, our, in heart. And those who are united in that sense, united in, in the sense of being brought up in, into and grafted into Christ, All those that are united will commune. Union, communion. Those that are united are holy. They're separated from this world, consecrated to God, one holy church, and those who are united commune. Union, communion. It's a communion of saints, and saints means holy ones. 
So there's one holy church separated from this world, and those who are members of that church are saints, holy ones, and they are to commune. And that's a, the practical application there, that each one of us must know it to be a, our duty to commune. Our duty to use our gifts for the advantage and salvation of other members. You and I must know that that's our duty. So, how, how do you do that? How do I do that? It's our duty. So I'm to read that and say, not only, okay, that's the idea of the communion. The idea of communion is that we're all using our gifts for the advantage of the other members. That that's what's meant by the communion of the saints. But then I apply it to myself and say, how am I doing that? That I'm employing the gifts that God has given me for others. For the advantage, and specifically, the advantage of the other members of the body. It's talking about the other members of the body of Christ. How am I using my gifts? And am I doing it cheerfully? When there's an opportunity for me to do something, do I do it readily? Do I do it cheerfully? That's the practical application, that we're called out, we're together members of a body, and then the idea of, well, if we're really members of a body, think of the members of the human body, and if we're really all members of a body, then we are using our gifts for the advantage of one another. We're one. God brings about the union, and we are to commune together. And we, we thank God. We do see this. We often talk about how we're so thankful for the communion of the saints. We have a beginning. We do see it. And we see our children using, learning to use their gifts for the advantage and salvation of the other members, as it says. And it's important that we teach the children not just to look at what their abilities are from a selfish point of view, but to look at it and say, you know, God has given me various gifts that I might use it for the advantage of the other members of the body, of the body of Christ, of the one flock for whom Jesus laid down his life. One flock. Communion of saints. And those who are members of that flock are, we hear, the ones we together hear, the shepherds 
voice. This is one of the passages that speaks about the fact that we do hear Christ's voice. This is one of the places, an example of how you can prove that, but it's, we, we go here, we go to Romans 10, verse 14. How shall they believe in him whom, and we say the correct translation should be whom. How shall they believe in him whom they have not heard, they have to hear. And how shall they hear without a preacher? That we hear in the preaching. We hear Christ speak to us. Like Paul, under the inspiration of the Spirit, wrote to the Ephesians and said to the Ephesians, Christ came and preached peace to you. And somebody said, he did? Christ came here and preached peace to us? Well, when they heard the preaching of the gospel, they were hearing Christ. As Christ says here, he doesn't just say, my sheep will hear about me. He says, my sheep hear my voice. And so we not only see that and can explain that, we don't say, you know, people can caricature what we're saying and as if we say that, oh, when a, that our preachers preach infallibly. We don't say that. But insofar as what is being preached is in harmony with God's word, that we hear what Christ is saying to us. And we know his voice. We know it's our faithful shepherd who died for us, who speaks to us personally, who comforts us personally as we hear the preached word, including the one bringing the word, who's also hearing it himself. We hear how Christ speaks words that are comforting to us personally. We hear him exhorting us. We hear what he calls us to do. We hear him point out our sins. And also speak to us about the forgiveness of sins. Christ seeks and saves the lost. The good shepherd is going to seek. Ezekiel 34 spoke about the shepherd seeking the sheep wherever they are. He's going to seek them. And Jesus said that he seeks and saves the lost. That's a, a story, story in the New Testament that illustrates that is the, is the story of Zacchaeus. And the scriptures tell that story about Jesus and Zacchaeus. On the one hand, it kind of looks like Zacchaeus is seeking Jesus, and he is. He even climbs a tree. The story is about how Jesus is seeking Zacchaeus. He seeks and he saves that which is lost. 
we hear his voice, we hear his call. Even an unbeliever would hear the external words. But there are some in whom the Spirit works. The Son of God gathers us by his word and spirit. And we hear the call of God. We hear the call of the shepherd. Calling us. Jesus said, I will bring them. He leads them. He directs us by his voice. And that, that then brings us to the doctrine of the apostolicity of the church. We don't use that word in the Apostles' Creed. We don't use the word apostolic. We do use the word in the Nicene Creed. There we speak of one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Now there are churches that call themselves apostolic. Just like there's churches that call themselves Catholic. That the Roman Romish church calls itself Catholic. Is it the Catholic church? No. It calls itself that. What really does it mean to be apostolic? It means you preach the same doctrine the apostles taught. That's what it means. And we read in the book of Acts, for example, that the saints remain steadfast in the apostles' doctrine. It was important to hold to the apostles' doctrine. Where some say, you know, it doesn't really make that much difference what doctrine you hold to. It's like saying it doesn't really make a difference if you're apostolic or not. The one holy church, the one holy Catholic church is apostolic we agree in true faith that's in the that's in the answer too it says a church chosen to everlasting life agreeing in true faith very different from today as people try to group together and have a group of people where anybody can believe whatever they want Whatever is in harmony with how you feel. Whatever you want to believe. That's freedom. You can confess whatever you want. The true church of Jesus Christ agrees in true faith, and that is faith of one who believes the truth. And the truth is the reality what is reality? God tells us what reality is. And we are to embrace, hold on to what Christ our Lord teaches us. There are those that try to bring out a 
Christianized society. What would be the basis for that? And I say, we got to make our society Christian. On the one hand, we do say it's the calling of all men everywhere to repent. We do say that. It is true that we're to go around and tell people that God, what God commands us, that God commands all men to repent and to believe the truth. And we do say that, but it's going to be the case that only, as Jesus said, but ye believe not because you're not of my sheep. There are many that are not of his sheep. Many will not believe. When you talk about society and trying to get all the people of society together, they're going to, what's going to be the basis of that? The truth? Agreeing in true faith? Is that going to be a body of people that agrees in true faith? Rather, the church is called out of this world, separated from this world. We're a holy church. And God said, unless the Lord build the house, they labor in vain that build it. You know, the Jews were, the Jewish leaders were builders. And they rejected the cornerstone. The stone which the builders rejected has become the head of the corner. They rejected the cornerstone. And both Ezekiel 34 and John 10 are both talking about how there are these unfaithful shepherds who are leading the people astray. And that Jesus will come and he will lead his flock. He will teach them the truth. And our calling is in obedience to the command of the Lord to preach the full counsel of God. And that's important, to preach the full counsel of God. But as we go through different times, difficulties that we face as churches. There may be certain subjects that are talked about more than others. It's important for us to remember that we are to preach the full counsel of God. Apostolicity, holding to the apostles' doctrine, that's the first mark of a true church. That's the connection between apostolicity and the marks of the church. What is apostolic? Holding to the apostles' doctrine. What's the first mark of the church? Preaching the apostles' doctrine. See the relationship. And so wherever one is a member, it should be that when somebody goes somewhere and decides they're going to be a member there, it's because they preach the apostles' doctrine. 
That's the central mark. Of course, it's also to be the case that we're to show that we really love that truth so that it's not just an external confession of the apostles' doctrine. It should be evident that we obey the shepherd. We hear the shepherd's voice. We obey him. It should be evident. That where you hear the doctrine preached, that others can see these people obey the shepherd. In contrast to what's going on out there, these people obey the shepherd. That's that's what we desire. We desire that to be very evident. We're all sinners. So people will come and join us and they'll see, well, you're, you're, you're sinners. Yeah, we are. But also to see that we are sorry for our sins. We don't impenitently walk in them. We don't say that these sinful practices are okay. The danger is that churches start saying that the sinful practices are okay. They're really not sin. But that we refer to sinful practices as sinful practices. Even if ever it's, it's, so many are doing it. If God says it's wrong, then it is. And we're to show ourselves to be those that are obeying the shepherd. You know who the foolish man was. Our children here know about the foolish man that built his house upon the sand. Who are those people? Who are those people that build their house upon the sand? Everyone that heareth these sayings of mine and doeth them not. That's what he said. Somebody that hears these sayings and doesn't do them shall be likened unto a foolish man which built his house upon the sand. The wise man builds his house upon the rock. And then there's the foolish man who builds his house upon the sand. That's someone who hears the sayings, but he does not do them. We are to show ourselves to be ones that are hearing the shepherd's voice and obeying the shepherd. And God gathers his people from all the nations. And that's the idea of the word Catholic. We've talked about one holy and apostolic, and now we get to the word Catholic. Catholic having the idea of being universal 
from all the nations. From all the nations. Ezekiel 34 spoke about those that would be gathered from the nations. That God would gather them and they together would be one flock. It would be the case for Israel that those who were God's people in the northern tribes, Israel, would be united with those who were God's people in Judah. So instead of having the Israel and Judah, there'd be one of those who believe in the Messiah from the northern tribes and those who believe from Judah. One. And also people gathered from the nations, one people, one flock gathered by the proclamation of that apostolic doctrine that's what the spirit uses and we have to keep preaching that truth and not look at it from the viewpoint of what's going to bring in more numbers sometimes people look at it and think well this doesn't seem to be bringing in very many and want to change the message to a message that would be more popular with people today. Well, then who's going to be gathered? The church is gathered by the the Spirit and Word. The Son of God gathers by His Spirit and Word, by the proclamation of the gospel of grace. And then, we are together to be united in, those that are gathered from the nations are to be united and formed into church institutes. There's an application of that too. Like 1 Timothy 3 talks about elders, 1 Timothy speaks about the church institute. It's one place where we read quite a bit about the church institute. It even says, he writes this, that thou mayest know how thou oughtest to behave thyself in the house of God. It's about what we're to do in the, as, we are, as a member of the church institute. Speaks about elders, speaks about deacons, and so on. Well, today, there are many that wouldn't be a member of the church institute. There are those that say they agree with us, and yet they're not, there's nobody, there's so few people around them that do. Maybe they don't even know of anybody else, or just one or two, we bring out, well, we get in contact with somebody, we try to talk with them about witnessing to others in their area, but as time goes on, there's times where we say, you know, in your case, you've been working, trying to witness to people there, you do need to be, it'd be good, maybe if you moved to be somewhere where the church was soundly preached, And there's our calling to gather together and to form into church institutes. Not each individual gathered and just living on their own. 
and just worshiping separately on their own. How is that in harmony with the confession of one holy Catholic and apostolic church? We are together. We are called to assemble together and to worship. And those churches that are like-minded are called to federate. That's another principle of Reformed church government. Biblical church government is that every church that holds to the apostles' doctrine, we're to federate with all those in whom we agree in faith, wherever. And what a joy that is to come into contact with God's people in far distant lands and hear them confess the same doctrine and that we can talk about the word together and learn from one another. Gathered from the nations. Manifesting on this earth as much as possible, striving to manifest the unity of the body of Christ, federating together. And what a joy, what a joy we have of knowing that we're washed in the blood of the Savior. We hear the same truth of just, that we're justified, that the Spirit sanctifies us, that we're righteous in our Lord, cleansed by the Spirit. And that our calling is to use our gifts for the advantage of the other members, not only in our own congregation, or certainly in our own congregation, but also beyond. And a desire faithfully to bring that word as God opens the door. As the gospel goes to the nations. I pray for our missionaries. We have them in the Philippines. Thankful for our sister churches. Pray the Lord continues to bless them and uphold them. May we with joy confess these words. And when we confess them as we do tonight, when we confess the, that we believe and holy Catholic Church, the communion of the saints, the forgiveness of sins, may we remember what we mean. And may we with joy confess our faith to the honor of the name of our God. Amen. Let us pray. Our Lord, our God, we are thankful, O Lord, for the comfort that we have in Christ Jesus. We are so thankful that we are among those that have been given to Christ, the Good Shepherd called out of darkness into light. And as we have an important calling, each one of us, each member of the body of Christ has an important calling. Strengthen us to do that work, faith, that work faithfully, readily and cheerfully to thy honor. Give comfort to all thy saints, and may thy name be praised for Christ's sake. Amen.